Hello, and welcome to No Favorite Movie, the podcast on which we get to know people better through the movies they love. I'm your host, Ethan Rosenberg. I'm releasing the first three episodes simultaneously to give folks a taste of how large the spectrum of these conversations can be. If Adam Sandler isn't your thing, I still encourage you to listen to the first couple of minutes of that episode to get a stronger sense of what the show is about. Today's episode features a conversation with Tara Edwards about the 2007 film Secret Sunshine, directed by Lee Chang Dong. The film is about a young Korean widow and her son who moved to a small town to make a fresh start after a family tragedy. Tara and I wade deep into the water of trauma and reconciliation, Lee Chang Dong's body of work, South Korean society at large, and other topics. We do our best to sidestep major plot revelations until about the 17-minute point, so if you're curious about the film and want to hear about it but haven't seen it yet, I recommend stopping there and picking up again once you have. The film is streaming on the Criterion channel and is available to rent at most major digital outlets. I'm here with Tara Edwards, a writer, sometimes journalist, and overall badass. And it's a real pleasure. I'm serious. <laughs> you did not say that you're going to say that, though. <laughs> That's fine, though. I'll let you have it. I'll All let right. you have that. <laughs> I appreciate that. But uh, we're here to talk about Secret Sunshine, and I'm really excited to talk about it. You know what? I feel like I I immediately said Secret Sunshine, and now I'm like... Am I really just going to fangirl about Yi Chang-dong for this whole thing? Because then I remembered his other movies and I'm just like, ah, you can't talk about Secret Sunshine without talking about the rest of them. So I don't know. Guess we'll find out. The only other one I had seen was Burning and you know, I really loved it. So I was really excited when you said Secret Sunshine and I watched it and it blew my mind. And yeah, I mean, it was like totally... I won't say unexpected, but it bore out so many interesting ideas in such a, I think, psychologically real way that I just have not seen in many movies at all, regardless of period. But I want to ask you, what made you choose this film uh, over any other? Um, well, to be honest, I actually really hate the what's your favorite movie, um, because that can mean a lot of different things. Like, is it your favorite movie because it's a comfort film? Is it your favorite movie because uh, you watch it a lot? Because the irony is I don't watch this movie a lot, but I picked it because it's a movie that shook me so bad that it remains my like Facebook header for the past like decade over multiple years. Just like, I, I can't change it because it was so... The movie is just so special and just so, and also just so Ichang Dong, like he would do that. He, the other films that he made include uh, Peppermint Candy and also Poetry, which he won um, Best Screenplay at Cannes for, and um, Oasis and Greenfish. Something I, I, not to do like a, a historical lesson on like South Korean filmmaking, but I think his perspective is always going to be super interesting in comparison to like say a uh, Bong Joon-ho or uh, Kim Sang-soo. I think it's always gonna be interesting because he's like a decade older than all of them and he 
started making film after like as like a secondary career like he had a huge career as like a teacher and a novelist and even served in the government for a little bit and then he's just like I want to try making movies and every movie he's made is like insanely good it's so bizarre yeah, this one in particular, I did a little bit of reading on him uh, after watching the film, and it actually is based on a short story uh, that he did not write. Are you familiar with that short story? I have notes because uh, I also had to like um, <laughs> do a presentation in college on this man. So <laughs> I actually don't remember the short story title, but I do remember that it is based on a short story. And so tell me a little bit about how you came to, like you said that you didn't want to give a lesson on South Korean filmmaking, and I don't want to make you do that if you don't want to, but <laughs> I also know that you have a certain degree of expertise in that. So I'm eager to hear what you have to say about it and this film's particular place within it and how, I guess we'll start with, how you came across this film in particular. Right. So like I said, I did have to do a presentation um, on Ichang Gong, but that was a choice I made on purpose because so background, we both went to NYU film school, um, but I also kind of minored in cinema studies. I was probably like one credit shy of the full minor, but I took uh, Korean culture through cinema. And then I took upper, le I, I fought my way into an upper level cinema studies uh, seminar on modern South Korean cinema, which it's always really fun being in a classroom full of cinema study heads and you're like in production. So you're just like, y'all are whining about the lights being on during this movie. <laughs> like, if you don't get out of here with that bullshit. But I had seen Peppermint Candy in my first Korean cinema class and Asha was so wild that I, I was like immediately in love with him as a filmmaker because um, Peppermint Candy has a storyline that is like 10 years of this man's life in reverse. And the reason why it was picked in that class as like a culture thing is because those 10 years and that singular man's life kind of Forrest Gump, but not like hilarious in that regard, like way more intense and horrible, documented like the insane level of social upheaval that was a direct result of South Korea's like rapid modernization. So after that, I became obsessed with him as a director because I'm just like, oh man, I would love to like make a movie about someone's life the way that he did, Peppermint Candy. And then uh, Boyhood stole my idea. So, you know, look out for that future lawsuit. <laughs> Just kidding. And then I, you know, I had to take his body of work for this class and analyze all of it. Um, and that's how I ended up watching Secret Sunshine. And I fell in love with it because I think he understands trauma in a way that a lot of directors like shy away from which is like the sense of it being ambiguous and also not being like a sort of western dramatic like you experience trauma and you get over it it's like actually you experience trauma and it continues to reveal how it affected you throughout your life and it's just like not a like one-off like hey this tragic thing happened and then 
I got over it and it was fine. It's like, no, uh, you're going to be struggling with that for pretty much the rest of your life. And also just like, he kind of makes movies that people would deem boring. And this is not to say that I find the films boring because I don't. But I just feel like, you know, the average viewer would find Miliang, which is the uh, Korean title, absolutely insufferable because there is no like great cathartic reprieve for Min Jae, the, the, the main character. I think that's her name. Yeah. Or Shin A, my bad. Shin A. There's just no like reprieve. And I think that that is super important and also kind of ties into what I was talking about with uh, Peppermint Candy, which is this idea that in South Korean culture, there is this concept called Han, which is loosely applicable to the American concept of like the blues, where it's like you have this intense sort of cultural pain that you cannot express the true depth of, but you know, you try anyway. And with his films, I feel like he always sort of highlights those like pockets of people that kind of South Korea forgets about. So you see, you know, Shane is just kind of like a regular, regular woman. And she lives in this town with these like regular ass people, which is very, you know, different than say something like a parasite where, you know, it's extremely poor and extremely wealthy, where it's like, he sort of focuses on this concept of like the forgotten people um, in society and the things that they're sort of struggling with. I said a lot there. (laughs) You did. And I'm really happy that you did. I want to get into the meat of the movie itself. I want to start by asking you about the opening and closing shots. I remember reading that Lee Chang-dong specifically wanted to start the film with a shot of the sky and end with a shot of the ground. Do you have a take on that? I would say that is kind of about his whole approach to this film. But I'm pretty sure that like in one of his interviews, he mentioned that in the process of making this movie in particular, he wanted it to be as simple as possible, which is also like, Girl, what you talking about? (laughs) What are you even saying? But basically, he um, wanted to make this film that was like super, super simple. And in turn, ended up having this sort of counterintuitive effect of being wildly complex. So if I had a comment on that in particular, those two, you know, shots, you kind of can compare it a little bit to burning and also his like whole deal with the sky and lighting and burning. But basically, I think his approach reminds me of the way that trauma writing happens um, in like uh, essays. And what I mean by that is it's a very circular approach. Like it's you circle the, the, the thing, whatever you're trying to like explain, and you circle around it until you finally get on to it because it's such a painful thing to just go directly at whatever it is and in this case it's Shanae's trauma so like I think the reason why it's the sky and the ground is because you basically go from a very sort of semi-optimistic life is going to be better we move to this town to like a very sort of deep 
pain of living through multiple traumas. So that's what I would say. Right. And I'll say that, you know, there's that initial trauma that starts the film, right? Her husband has died. She's moving back to where he grew up and, you know, wants to connect with him in that way and her son. And around 40 minutes into the film, there's this huge change, right? I'll try to leave it somewhat ambiguous. Right, right. But, but there's this huge change and an even more heartbreaking trauma happens to her. And I'll say that when I was watching for the first 40 minutes, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a cool kind of in its way, kind of quietly uplifting movie. Like she's trying to move on from this trauma, like you were saying, but then change happens so quickly, yet it also feels so organic. Um, as I reflect on the movie, like there are little details in those first 40 minutes that bear out oh yeah, there is something that's going to happen. And one thing in particular that I wanted to address with you is the matter of faith. And from, oh, like there's, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk to with regard to faith. Uh, and in my point of view, it's not really a movie about faith so much as it is the psychology of faith and about one individual's relationship to faith and its inefficacy, if you will, uh, to help with coping. What do you feel about the faith in the movie? Yeah, definitely the one might say from a cultural per cultural perspective that that was an obvious, you know, scathing critique of uh, Christianity and South Korean culture, um, particularly the kind of sort of like toxic positivity approach to tragedy, um, especially because there's that scene in the parking lot when she's just like, girl, this is some bullshit. <laughs> this is not helping me at all. And I think that that was such an important moment, especially when it comes to trauma, because if you think of something like faith, right, you have these people who constantly go around sort of thinking like, you know, God doesn't give you anything you can't handle, which is like, yeah, after the things that she's gone through, it's like, obviously she would be like, uh, I don't know how much I believe that. So beyond the sort of cultural criticism of the sort of toxic positivity that Christianity in South Korea, that's like a whole other thing. Like if you remember the early pandemic, the hot spots in South Korea were the churches. So that's a thing to, you know, further investigate if you're interested in that. But from a sort of narrative slash philosophical standpoint, I think this story in terms of faith is really just about how transient faith is and how you can't, it's, you're never going to feel exactly the same way you feel about life at any given point. And so that is kind of an ambiguity that I think he captured really well. It's like, you can't really expect to have, you know, faith all the time. And you can't really expect other people to have faith all the time. Cause it's just like, life is definitely not smooth sailing in any way, shape or form, even for the most privileged people. Absolutely. The strongest moments in the movie to me are the ones in which she is wrestling with her faith. And the ones that I'm thinking of in particular are when she goes to that initial prayer vigil for wounded souls, I think they call it. And she has that kind of cathartic initial born again experience. And then again, 
there's this almost anti-catharsis later when she visits someone in prison who claims to have had his own spiritual experience. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit too about uh, the performance there. Yeah, it's, it's all about contradictions, right? And there are lots of cool interviews out there where he talks about like his stuff with actresses and actors. My interpretation of that is basically that at the end of everything, Shine is just kind of representative of not just one or the other. She's not immediately hopeful. She's, she's also very tragic in a lot of ways. She's both at the same time. And I think he highlighted this contradiction, especially towards the end of the movie, because you kind of get this like false sense of like the just putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound and being like, yeah, everything's great. And I think he he does this a lot, too, in like all of his films where he's just like, there's this need to be comfortable and for everything to be in its place. And that's just simply not the case in reality. So I would say she's kind of a perfect example of what happens when platitudes and the concept of forgiveness is not really explored and just, you know, sort of this, I'll use an example, restorative justice, right, which is kind of related to this whole situation. There is a podcaster I really love, uh, Crystal West from The Read, and she says, I'm just not saved enough for that kind of level of forgiveness. And I think that to me is like the best example I can think of for the kind of expectation, like a lot of super hardcore abolitionists are like able to forgive in a way that an individual who has experienced harm probably can't. And I think that that's Shine at the end of the movie is just like, I, mm, I'm not saved enough for this. Right, because there's that scene in the barbershop and she's basically, I won't call it lashing out because I frankly think that it is a legitimate trauma response, but she starts to become upset at this hair salon because <laughs> it's so... <laughs> That's the thing. I'm so I'm trying so hard to avoid spoilers, but I honestly just feel like it's best to just kind of get into the thick of uh, what makes this movie work. I mean, there is a clockwork involved. So her son is kidnapped. Her son is kidnapped, uh, kidnapped and murdered, I should say. Yeah, as I was going to say, don't leave um, out the death. Yeah, no, that's, that's, <laughs> no, that's yeah. key. And the kidnapper's daughter cuts her hair. And his daughter uh, also really struggling. And I think that the movie takes great care to indicate, that's what I think is one of the movie's great successes, is that the psychological complexity is not specific only to Shine. Almost every single character who appears on screen has a few moments of like, oh my God, there's so much depth there. I mean, it's pain, you know, I think, yeah. I think anytime we get a look at the depth of a character, it's through that angle of, oh, they're experiencing very deep suffering. Nevertheless, I still think that it brings a great deal of um, verisimilitude and resonance to Shine's story. You know, it kind of gives me the impression of like, okay, we could be following any person in this town and they would have a compelling story to share. 
but this is just the one that we're following. And and that barber or in the salon toward the end, yeah, she gets up and she's like, I just can't do this, like you said. And interestingly enough, decides to cut her own hair. However, not without a little help from Jongchan. Yeah. This is his name. So can you can you talk a little bit about Jongchan and his role in the film and how he how his presence in the film influences your interpretation? Yeah, I had to look up the actor's name real quick because I he's like huge. Zhong Chan is actually played by Song Kang Ho, who is very, very recognizable in lots of different popular um, Korean films. Um, he's also in Parasite, so there you go. But basically, I think he works as a really good foil in the sense that he seems to have understood trauma in a way that he can be a source of uh, a source of like comfort because the thing about trauma too is that you can't get over it alone everybody needs a support system and because of you know the fact that this woman has had literally everyone in her life like taken from her it feels like without uh Zhongshan like we'd be looking at a whole different ending and I think there's a shot of him where he's like in the dark and then he turns on like a overhead lamp um really just kind of captures this thing that Yi Chang Dong does with like lights and shadows and like constantly sort of playing with that intersection and showing how like not to quote Kingdom Hearts but please do <laughs> um the brighter the light the heart the the larger the larger the shadow it casts and I think that that's kind of what's happening with his character and this town um because it's like super fucking bright all the time and the choice to film mostly during the day I think was to sort of highlight that contradiction that like all that brightness and happiness and positivity there's always darkness to go with it. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I really wanted to talk about the cinematography. I think it's stunning. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. I love that contrast that you brought up, that irony that's on display. But I also wanted to ask you, most of it, if not all of it, is handheld. And I'm wondering if that had any resonance for you, the fact that it was handheld. I think that was a testament to his what his desire to make this as simple as possible. I'm now remembering slash rereading his interview with uh, Kim Young-jin. And apparently there was some trouble on set in regards to this simplicity because he's actually a huge perfectionist and apparently would constantly reshoot just do tons and tons of takes of the same things and then he says you know actually it wasn't that bad <laughs> you guys are like wild and <laughs> but basically though that I think was all sort of him trying to make this film at least production wise as simple as possible and also again counterintuitively that ended up making everything more complex um which another thing that is context for this film is that I forgot that this was a huge hiatus period. So between Peppermint Candy and this film, he had actually spent like five or six years not doing film. So in some ways, this was him kind of 
coming back to the practice of things. But I guess if I had to say, like, what is my experience of this film cinematography? I keep going back to just the brightness of the town in comparison to the story and what everyone is experiencing. Something that comes to mind when I think about that that contradiction too is that that's kind of Korean culture in a nutshell. And here's what I mean by that. There is this viewpoint of Koreans as very productive, very proper, very sort of concerned with being upstanding members of society. And it's immediately contradicted by their suicide rates, prostitution, and just the context in this film of like crime and cops being useless. Um, Shout out to Bong Juno and the cops. You can learn more about that in his film, Memory of a Murder. I think what happens to Shane is kind of like a perfect example of that contradiction of everything being sort of ho-hum, light, beauty, whilst, you know, her son is kidnapped and murdered. And the expectation that she would just forgive and move on, I think is also something that you can kind of see in all of his films, which is this sense of wanting to highlight tragedy and trauma because there is this larger desire to just move forward by Korean society. You can see that especially in the train motif and peppermint candy because it's like, you know, we got to industrialize. We have to become, you know, this huge upstanding forceful country. But at the same time, it's like you steamrolled through all of the pain and suffering that happened to the individual in that regard. Speaking of individuals, is are there any individuals that you share this movie with? No. <laughs> and that's only because, again, this film is not for like the short attention span, having Disney watching need for catharsis in like Western viewership, I think. But I think I've always been drawn to films like this because they're difficult And also because I am and continue to be obsessed with family trauma on screen. Um, It shows up in my own work all the time. Even though I don't, I wouldn't necessarily be like, hey, best friend, let's watch this horribly tragic movie. (laughs) I do always bring it up in a formal sense when people ask me like, what are your favorite films? Or honestly, who's your favorite director? Because I'll say Yitong Dong every time, even though I am like a Nolan apologist. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about Nolan too. But before we do that, for someone like me who has seen Burning and honestly saw Burning without a lot of context, you know, it, it made a splash. I think it was 2018 is when it came out. It kind of made a splash in the film scene and I saw it and really loved it. But to be perfectly honest, a lot of it went over my head. You've provided an enormous amount of really helpful context today for Secret Sunshine. Having seen Burning, having seen Secret Sunshine, and really enjoyed both, where's next? Peppermint Candy, hands down. Because before Secret Sunshine, Peppermint Candy was my favorite movie. And then I kind of like, they like fight each other in my head for like love and affection. I mentioned Peppermint Candy before as being a sort of like antithesis to the kind of goofiness of Forrest Gump's sort of recounting American history through one man's life um, in the sense that we are recounting Korean history through one man's life, but there is no hope to be found. Well, I won't say that because I think what he tries to do is to find hope 
in the suffering because you know even though Secret Sunshine ends in a kind of like upsetting way rather you know you realize basically this is Shanae's descent into you know pain and suffering and she has a pretty bad ending but then I think at the same time it is a hopeful ending because you know she's not alone at the end and she seems to have processed at least a really hard part of her trauma so Peppermint Candy highly recommend definitely watch that and poetry a little bit too but I would say Peppermint Candy before poetry because it's just the amount of like historical context you get for South Korea while also having this poor man men could really benefit from watching peppermint candy that's all I'm gonna say for that without spoiling any more <laughs> that's awesome that's I appreciate that. That actually will get me in the door, as it were, because I was like after finishing Secret Sunshine, you know, I watched an interview, you know, read a couple of essays and I was just like, I still kind of don't know where to go next. And that makes sense, even though his filmography, I mean, compared to the output of so many other directors is rather small. Each one feels so massive to me, like to this day, I've only seen Burning once, but I think about it at least once a week. Well, yeah, Burning. I remember going to see Burning because obviously I'm a Beachango fangirl. And I had a moment during the scene where it's shot during sunset and the female character looks a little bit like a cutout almost. And I'm just like, I can't with this man. I can't. <laughs> that was like, I can't with this man. I can't because how did, how? Why did you think of this? Like, how did you think of this? And then I'm just like, especially in the context of everything that happens to her, that sense of her being a cutout is just so like mind-blowingly amazing as a metaphor. But yeah, all of his movies, including the older ones like Greenfish and Oasis, which Oasis is probably his most uncomfortable to watch film. Um, so that's a warning, but also it's still a very good film. He does that thing of just, it seems like a simple story, but there is just so much going on under the surface. So you mentioned Nolan and I, I don't want to <laughs> spend too much time on Christopher Nolan, but as an apologist, what I just find that interesting because I... I'm like a Nolan, lukewarm, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Did we have our Batman argument at work? Hey, did we? I don't know. What, well, I, I guess the question is, what is there to argue about? Oh, it's just because I have the unpopular opinion that The Dark Knight Rises is actually the best one out of the three. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, then I guess there is something to argue about there. <laughs> <laughs> and... I think that me being a Nolan apologist is directly related to my love for East Asian storytelling style, because I feel like Nolan dips into that sometimes where thematically theme is more important than story, which does not play well in Western con contexts. Uh, <laughs> which is why I think The Dark Knight Rises is better, because I feel like the theme is more important and but the story of course ends up kind of like fighting with the theme in a lot of ways so my apologies for Nolan kind of stopped after <laughs> Interstellar because I didn't watch Tenet and there you go <laughs> well I appreciate that my favorite's probably Memento do you have a take on Memento Memento's good yeah Memento is peppermint candy adjacent actually oh no kidding back. okay to, to bring it back to 
my favorite, favorite director of all time, Yi Chang-dong. So. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about Secret Sunshine and uh, Lee Chang-dong. This was a lot of fun. And if you think of another favorite movie, I would love to have you back on. This was a real thrill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the other favorite movie is probably Nightmare Before Christmas. So, yeah. Oh, see, I yeah. would love to talk about that. Yeah, I would yeah. actually, because, well, you can tell me, I'm assuming that the reasons you love A Nightmare Before Christmas are different from the reasons you love Secret Sunshine. Or they're the same in a lot oh. of ways. Real quick, is there anything you want to plug? Well, I guess I will plug that I do have two K-pop podcasts. So if you're into K-pop or want to get into K-pop, um, you can listen to The Shining Print or the NCT podcast, both of which I am a host on. I can say that Tara is the greatest possible Virgil into the K-pop realm. She's the one that got me into K-pop. Yes. Um, unfortunately, I can't let go. <laughs> <laughs> no reason to. It's great stuff. Thank you so much, Tara. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was great and would love to come back. Thank you. I'd like to thank Tara again for being on the show, and I will link to those podcasts in the show notes. I would also like to thank Jeff Smith for composing the music. Be well, and talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.